The Scream Kings are in no way responsible for any encounters with the paranormal, extraterrestrial abductions, eldritch insanity, hauntings, curses, hexes, demonic possessions, cryptozoological sightings, or any loss of sleep that results from listening to this podcast. This is the Scream Kings podcast. I'm Max George. And I'm Nathaniel Darkish. If your refrigerator goes on the fritz, or your microphone blows up, or your podcast conks out, before you call the repairman, turn on all the lights, check all the closets and cupboards, look under all the beds, because you never can tell. There just might be a gremlin in your house. Uh, This is honestly, like, painful. Oh my gosh. Okay, so to provide some context for anyone who doesn't follow our misadventures on Twitter, this episode was supposed to come out right about Christmas time, and we recorded it. It's Gremlins. It's Christmas. Tis the season. Exactly. But here's the thing about Gremlins, and, and we'll get into this in terms of looking at the folklore of Gremlins and all of that, but basically, Gremlins mess up technology and when we did our first run of of doing this episode we made a joke on the episode about oh if there's any technical issues it's the fault of gremlins ha ha we should not have we should not have said that yeah little did we know they were listening oh they were (laughs) because my audio what remained of it sounded like hot garbage and most and was was two-thirds just gone so i wasn't able to splice something together yep it it was was gone yep just just in the ether and then to you know complicate things even more then we were like okay well i guess we need to re-record haha no no the gremlins weren't gonna let that happen because all of a sudden my refrigerator just died it wasn't that I left the door open or, you know, left the freezer door ajar. The whole damn thing just essentially died on me. So, Merry Christmas to Max. I lost probably 200 plus worth of food, produce, meat. I had to get a whole brand new fridge from my landlord. You just can't make this up, Nathaniel. <laughs> and it is... and oh. on my end, then uh, I... One, have been uh, dealing with issues with a microphone for a while. And part of that, I think, was just that my... So I built my own computer. It, you know, I, I ended up buying like the case used, and I think the case was crapping out on me. Anyway, so I bought a new PC case. And the day that we were supposed to record, when you know Max's fridge was busy crapping out, I was you know at work happily moving all of the components from one computer case to another. And I go, okay, I've got everything, you know, set up well. My cable management's okay. I, you know, just before I close it all up, I I decide to plug it in just to make sure it's all working right. I plug it in, hit the power button, and nothing happened. I went, what the hell? And I tried it again. And I just tried, you know, moving some stuff around, plugging, or, you know, unplugging stuff, replugging stuff. 
And what should have been an hour, maybe two hours of work turned into an entire day of work. And I just couldn't figure it out. And, and, and eventually, with the help of, of a friend and you know hours and hours of trial and error, came to the conclusion that just in the process of me switching everything from one computer case to another computer case, the power supply that I had just died. <laughs> so I'm not recording this on that computer yet because I'm waiting for a new power supply to come in. And thankfully, I have a new microphone too. It's we just had to basically like burn everything down, salt the earth, and now we're starting over again. So uh, we're going to apologize to Gremlins repeatedly over the course of this episode, and that is why we love you, Gremlins. You're our friend. We manifest you in positive ways. We'll feed you after midnight if you want. We will get you wet. We will take you to the spa, hot tub. We'll, Lazy we'll, River. We'll show you your favorite movies. <laughs> yeah, uh, you you now own us, Gremlins. So congratulations. But moral of the story is, Scream Kings are back. We had an awesome holiday. All of the Gremlin shenanigans aside, uh, we were really trying to get this episode out before the Christmas holiday. We could not because of the Mogwais and their craziness. But yeah. we're really really pumped and hyped to talk about Gremlins one. Uh, which debuted in 1984, and then Gremlins 2 as well, the new batch, in 1990, our year of birth. Yes, as well as a little bit about Gremlins and folklore. And again, Gremlins, we love you. You're the best. You're great. Yeah, we have no no complaints about you, regardless of anything that comes after this. <laughs> so, Nathaniel, let's dive into Gremlins 1. What is it? It's your new dip. <laughs> Number one, you gotta keep him out of bright light. Number two, keep him away from water. This is incredible. And probably the most important thing, don't ever feed him after midnight. Billy, what are these things? Gremlins. You know, I, I had a tweet that this movie to me is essentially a masterpiece, so to speak. Uh, it came out in kind of the golden age of horror in the 80s. It's a fun Christmas take on a horror element. Uh, but as we kind of dive into it, this movie is kind of complicated in ways that are fun, but also interesting because it is kind of presenting as a kid's movie. Uh, but there's a lot that happens within it that's definitely not kid-focused. And, and so it's kind of this nuanced little horror film that a lot of people love and, and cherish. Absolutely. Um, so I guess just a few details about Gremlins. Um, so it was uh, directed by Joe Dante, written by Chris Columbus, uh, and was produced by uh, Steven Spielberg and a, a couple of other big players. But... Uh, I bring up Spielberg specifically because he he definitely left his mark on this movie in terms of its its feel. Yeah, it, it was a, a massive hit. It, it you know spawned lots of merchandise and uh, obviously a sequel, and is still in the public uh, public zeitgeist today. So definitely something about this movie really has a lot of uh, lasting power. So let's talk about some of the things we really liked about it, and then we'll kind of dig into some. Light problems, we'll say, though <laughs> Gremlins forgive us for any criticism. Gremlins, we're criticizing the movie, not you. Yes, you're perfect. 
Um, but probably the highlight of the Gremlins movie is the puppetry and the practical effects that oh, uh, yeah. Dante and Columbus and Spielberg, all of them kind of really established. Uh, last time we recorded this, Nathaniel, you just kind of exploded about how much you love practical effects. Do you want to give yes. the listeners a little bit more of that? Yes. Uh, so what I love about practical effects is that, I guess, w- when you sit down and you watch a movie, there's a certain level of suspension of disbelief that's instantly happening, right? Like, if you're sitting down and watching a movie, you have to accept things as, you know, basically you have to accept the unreal as being at least kind of real for the purposes of enjoying the entertainment. You know, same as when you crack open a book or things like that. And so, to me, what I really like about practical effects is that even if they don't look perfect, um, it's... I, th- I think it... it rewards your buy-in as an audience member one that movies that that do good work with practical effects and puppetry they i think create a better experience overall because like the actors have something to look at and interact with and and it really just kind of adds a lot more like depth and soul to the movie but also you know at the end of the day the best cg effects just don't quite do it to the same level as uh, a, a practical effect. You know, I, I would say you know a lot of the best movies today will will very expertly combine the two, but like to me, a good movie is going to be use, utilizing a lot of practical effects and things like puppetry because, again, yeah, it, it creates uh, uh, an experience for the viewers where you know we've already bought in, we we, we already are watching the movie. So give us something that, that we can look at that's, that's cool, that's interesting, and is, in fact, real and tangible in some way. The, I think the comparison I, I gave uh, when we recorded this previously was that Lord of the Rings trilogy of films were very good because they utilized both practical effects and CG in a way that, that worked really well. And, and, you know, the actors actually were acting with things. But the Hobbit movies are kind of... Uh, a soulless husk because it's it, it was mostly just people sitting in green rooms acting by themselves pretending like they were looking at things that didn't exist um that hadn't been you know made in computer yet and and that's just that i think the the perfect example of kind of the difference here and so you know the returning this to gremlins i love gremlins because there are actually these gremlin puppets that that they made that moved that you know they could do some really really cool articulation and all of that they did some amazing stuff and it was real and the actors had to interact with it and and you can tell that that's what makes this movie i think work as well as it does yeah and i don't want to fully knock on cgi and special effects i think there's a lot of cool things that we can do nowadays that we never thought possible. For sure. Uh, However, uh, the caveat to all of that is kind of what you were saying is when it comes to practical effects, I truly believe that it allows the artists working on the film, they they have to figure it out, so to speak. They have to take that artistic power that they have and really create something out of nothing. And to some effect, you're doing that with special effects, but in no way the magnitude that happens when it comes to practical effects. Like you said, somewhere out there in Hollywood, they're 
you know, is a storage container that has these gremlins in it, uh, these puppets that people moved and used to create this movie. And, and there's a deep kind of cool energy in all of that, that when it's done well, really immortalizes movies, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I think Gremlins is a perfect example of that because of all of these amazing practical effects. You know, the Mogwai Gizmo is now a Furby and take a Furby and now it's a hatchling. Uh, this iconic movie really created something out of nothing. And that's just cool to me as a fan of cinema, seeing the longevity of some artistic person's creation just kind of blows my mind. And I feel like I'm getting very philosophical and and whatnot. But in some regard, it's very similar to a tulpa. Uh, In mythology, a tulpa is something that is created out of the imagination or the belief of someone. Uh, And I think this is kind of that, but in real life. And, And I think, you know, again, like almost every movie, especially from this era, you know, they had to find ways to make these ideas real and and you know viewable i mean you know spielberg obviously is is a pinnacle of that you know he i mean you just just watch et and and watch the that puppetry you know there's just the fact that that they found ways to make these things filmable is is honestly kind of mind-boggling and i i love it because you know with with this film in, in particular like this was some of the best puppetry out there I mean, these were these were uh, puppets that the, the security freaking didn't let anyone on or off set without searching their car kind of level of, of amazing puppetry that, that they didn't want someone to run off with. Yeah. So, again, we, we definitely stand practical effects. I think, like you said, though, the combination of practical and special is really how you do it. Uh, but... Let's focus on the practical effects. Uh, they're going to come into play quite a bit in Gremlins 2 as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even some special effects, which is fun. Let's maybe dive into Gremlins 1 and, and talk about the film. Yeah. Um, so one of the big things with this, with this first film is that like, it's, it's a, a, an extremely straightforward plot, but it works. You know, There's not a lot of complexity to it. Basically, kooky dad gets his son a weird exotic pet a mogwai uh there are rules to the mogwai and when they don't get followed suddenly we have a whole bunch of gremlins running around destroying their town and they have to deal with that like a to b to c to d that's that's the plot and and it's really very simple but i think that's what makes it work is it there's not some like deep conspiracy or other you know weird stuff that that complicates the plot it really is pure and simple Hey, here's a thing that happens. Things, uh, rules get ignored, and here are consequences that they now have to deal with. Yeah, I think on Scream Kings, we talk a lot about some of our favorite horror movies, which kind of the art pop horror esque, you know, Hereditary, Midsummer, anything for Jackson, kind of these high level horror movies that are phenomenal. They're great cinema, and they have a wonderful message. But they do take an effort in watching. You kind of have to stay present while watching. You have to really focus in on what the themes of the movie are talking about. And Gremlins is just, it's a nice palate cleanser. It's a movie that you can turn on while decorating for Christmas. It's a movie you can turn on while cooking. 
and it doesn't require that mental fortitude that some of our other favorite horror movies have and there's a lot of positivity in that i i really enjoy gremlins just because it's kind of a popcorn movie but a lot yep. better than what we typically <laughs> describe popcorn movies to be i can sit down watch gremlins and have a good time every time i watch it because i I don't have to overthink. I'm not expending extra energy trying to understand the message that the creators are trying to put forth. Yeah, and and what's nice about it too is that like certainly you can look at at the film critically and and find deeper messages. Like I, I definitely think that it's very like critical of a lot of Reagan era politics and you know the the Cold War paranoia and consumerism and all of that. Like all of that is present. But at the end of the day, it's kind of just a dumb, silly movie in the best possible way. It's not, like, mind-numbing or frustrating. It's really just a, a movie that you can jump in, have fun, you know, high-five your friends, watch some shenanigans, and, and then move on with your life. And, and there's definitely a lot of value in that. You know, not every movie should or needs to be a high-concept, you know, complicated, nuanced plot. Pure and simple, it has has a lot of merit. So moving aside from that, uh, talking about the plot in particular, uh, like I mentioned a little bit earlier, Gremlins is a little bit nuanced in that it is presenting as kind of this jovial, family-friendly horror movie that you can watch around Christmas time. And Nathaniel, we love a good horror movie that takes something pure and innocent like Christmas and twists it into dark. Uh, however... With Gremlins, I was kind of shocked rewatching it this year of how gory it is um, and, and how kind of spooky it is. I mean, Gizmo is adorable, and I will kill for Gizmo. All the other Gremlins are equally adorable, if they're listening. <laughs> but, you know, there's that scene with the mom where she goes into the kitchen after the Gremlins first hatch. And she stabs one repeatedly. She throws one into like the blender and gremlin juices get everywhere. And then there's that iconic scene where she throws another gremlin into the microwave and nukes it and it explodes. Like there's these very thematic horror elements to this movie that are kind of jarring and a little surprising. Oh, oh yeah. This is, this is a freaking goopy movie. Yeah, exactly. Goop. Like, like, yeah, it gets gross, it gets nasty, it gets violent, it gets dark. I mean, there's the, I mean, even just the, the very famous, you know, monologue about, <laughs> uh, about the, the dad in the playing Santa Claus kind of thing. That, you know, isn't exactly super uh, kid-friendly. But, this movie was rated PG. Obviously, I guess it's, it's, it's worth noting to that you know, this movie is one of the, the movies that finally pushed the MPAA to make something between PG and R. Uh, because it's definitely not really a PG movie, but it's definitely not an R movie either. Uh, and so it's one of those movies that, honestly, in many ways, it's kind of surprising that it was as successful as it was because it was really dark for a lot of, you know, family outings, I'm sure. I'm sure a lot of people went to it, oh, this would be a cute kids movie, and it was not that. But it also isn't like, you know, uh, one of the slasher movies that was popular at the time either. It's it's this weird in-between. It honestly shouldn't have been successful. And I know that, like, Joe Dante has has 
commented, like, I have no idea how this movie worked, like, financially, but it really did. Well, and again, it's, it's misleading in that I thought, you know, this is going to be a great movie to show my daughter. It's going to be so fun. And then after rewatching it, it's like, oh, no, she's way too young for some of this stuff. Uh, and so, like, like we've been talking about, it is very nuanced. I definitely wouldn't recommend showing it to any kid. You, you really need to understand that, yes, it's a family kind of horror movie. But that doesn't mean that the gore and the horror is very prominent and pretty, I mean, disturbing or intense, for lack of a better term. Yeah, it's definitely... It... It comes a lot harder than most other movies, you know, that are PG horror in, in terms of, yeah, the intensity and the darkness and the violence and the gore. Not to say that, like, by uh, an R-rated uh, movie standards, this is anything to even bat an eye at. It, like, that, that, that's the weird thing. Again, it's like, it's in this weird in-between place where even, like, PG-13 doesn't quite feel <laughs> totally PG, right. PG-10. <laughs> yeah. But it is what it is, and, it, and it's this kind of weird magical gem that still works in spite of not really having a specific audience. And I'm glad it exists, because it really does inexplicably work. Another thing that, that we have here is just, like it, like, it is really fun to actually have one. It, it, you know, it is a Christmas movie. It's yeah. not just like a movie happens to be set at Christmas time. Like, there are a lot of Christmas themes and ideas present. Um, you know, it's... Yeah, it's definitely a Christmas movie. This is just like Die Hard is a Christmas movie. <laughs> and I mean, things can be more than one thing, right? I love people who yeah. say that Nightmare Before Christmas is, is it a Halloween movie or a Christmas movie? Well, why can't it be both? The answer is yes. Yeah, and I think Gremlins is another prime example of that. It's set around Christmas time. It's very adequate to watch around the holidays, but I wouldn't exclusively watch it in the month of December. Mm -hmm. uh, Things can be more than one thing, people. Like gremlins, they can be cute and adorable like Gizmo, and terrible like Stripe or Spike or whatever his name is. Stripe. <laughs> uh, I also want to kind of give a nod to the music. These films that were done in the, the 80s really have some of the best soundtracks out there. My ringtone right now is the gremlins ringtone because of the rewatch that I did. Uh, this, and you have, you know, of course, the Freddy movies, the Jason movies, Scream, Jaws, all of these iconic horror movies have really created their own kind of sound to them. And there's power in that as well. You hear the Gremlins theme song, you think of those mischievous little buggers who we love and adore and protect and think they're the best because we're podcasting right now. It has a lot of, yeah, that Spielbergian, you know, charm that i think defined a lot of our childhoods and uh but but is also definitely not just spielberg you know uh, as i mentioned you know it was written by uh chris columbus who among other things i believe worked on like sherlock holmes uh young sherlock holmes and uh the the first two harry potter movies he directed those he uh, worked on home alone he did a lot of you know very big iconic things uh, for our, uh, you know, for our childhoods, and um, yeah, so it's it's fun to see how it's it's this kind of weird collaboration between a lot of Spielberg small town feel and you know ideologies and stuff like that. Chris Columbus's kind of whimsical but perverse charm 
and then you know Joe Dante bringing a lot of the the horror um, ID yeah a lot of his horror ideas to the things as well. It's just a weird movie, but it works. It works so well. So let's talk a little bit about some of the issues that we have with the movie. Um, it it is racist. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, no getting around it. <laughs> Uh, the, there are some very anti-Asian themes in this movie, primarily, of course, with where the Mogwais come from. Or, I wouldn't say that it's inherently anti-Asian, it's just very backwards in its interpretation of like, oh, Asia must be this weird, mystical place where all of the thinking is backwards and, you know, it's relying on the wisdom of the ancients. It's just, just like every bad Asian stereotype shoved into one thing. Yeah, I mean, I think we're saying the exact same thing, just different semantics here. Uh, it's it's very aggressive in in terms of those bad stereotypes. It's also quite sexist. Yes, the our main character definitely, you know, I want to say he's a product of his times, which is true to some extent. But the way the dialogue plays out and how the characters interact with each other, it's very clear that the straight white men are far superior to the women and any other race. Uh, and again, we're talking about that Reaganism, I think, here too, where you can look at Gizmo as kind of this pure innocence that everyone thought it was, and then you play around with it a little bit, and it turns into absolute chaos. Uh, yeah. If we're going to extrapolate any sort of metaphor or meaning out of Gremlins, I, I think it is kind of that white national purity that everyone thought we had back then, and understanding that once you peel the layers back a little bit, things get shitty pretty quick. Yeah, and and unfortunately, like I think it's it it suffers from both being critical of that, but also falling into the trappings of that. Like yeah, like I I feel like the Federers, um, Ugh. which are the worst characters, and they're in both films for no good reason. Yeah, uh, you know, but but they're definitely like your very stereotypical like Reagan era, you know hyper-conservative shaking your fist at, at those no-good pinko commies and, you know, America's the only good place and, you know, that kind of ideology. And and I think they're being portrayed that way in a way that's supposed to make fun of that idea, but it also still has them be kind of heroes regardless of that. And I think that's that's a, a problem. It, it It doesn't pick a lane. It's making fun of them, but it also rewards them for that kind well, of yeah, backwards thinking they're xenophobic to their core they're racist to their core and they're trying to make a joke about it but like you're saying it doesn't go anywhere it's the joke at the expense of the racism or the xenophobia which doesn't feel good it doesn't come off good uh, and it's just it's gross uh, there's there's some issues with yeah. sweet little gremlins gremlins you're not racist the people who've created this movie are we still love you gremlins because we're podcasting. And and also, you know, like like you mentioned, like, yeah, some of the sexism is definitely present. You know, I like I feel like uh, you know, Kate, who is probably our second biggest character, you know, played by Phoebe Cates, she is kind of treated as, as a second fiddle, even though she's doing a lot of very important stuff. And I would say, you know, this movie had some problems with, with its treatment of her. It's way worse than the second one. She's yeah. she's just like She's an idiot who can't remember what, you know, anything looks like in the second one, even though she's still doing a lot of the most important things. It's 
just pick a lane movie. <laughs> well, and we can talk about this a little bit more when we discuss the second movie, but there's a scene where she's essentially told to stop feeling her emotions because mm-hmm. her partner at the time he just doesn't like that he just doesn't like it when she's emotional and it's just it's gross it's toxic masculinity sexism everything that i hate about all of this it's Mm -hmm. just gross it's gross unfortunately yeah a lot of our main characters do a lot of really stupid stuff you know it, it certainly relies on a lot of like character stupidity to make a lot of the plot work yeah and i i think that is you know when we first recorded i think the creators of the movie were kind of playing into that, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're being dumb because it's kind of funny when people are dumb. Uh, and it adds to the idea of the gremlins, perhaps. I, I don't know, because they, they do make a lot of stupid decisions. Yeah, well, I guess the the problem is, it seems like they make a lot of stupid decisions and then inexplicably suddenly become like really smart and good at fighting gremlins. <laughs> like halfway through the movie it's just this like weird switch that gets flipped and suddenly they're competent and it's it's hard to like their competence when i saw their you know ineptitude causing all of the problems to begin with other than that i think the only other con i'd have to say is it's gory the movie's goopy it's kind of gross that microwave scene is pretty intense uh, but it's not scary. I don't know if it'd be scary to kids, even. Uh, mm. uh, I, I would say I would say because it takes the the cute and sweet and like oh I would want that as my toy or my pet, and then it like per- twists it and makes it suddenly like hey that sweet cute thing is now stabbing you in the face. I think that is actually what would make it scary to kids. Yeah, I, I understand that. But as far as, like, there's not a ton of jump scares, there's not horrific images, you know, the nun isn't coming out anywhere or whatever. Uh, yeah, it's, and, it's, it's, it's a scary that I think frightens children. It doesn't frighten adults. Right. And as horror veterans, there's nothing intimidating or daunting about the film at all. And again, yeah. that's, that's okay. Uh, we need horror movies that are presented like that. It's a palate cleanser for a lot of a lot of us. Oh, one other little con that, well, it's not so little, but one other thing I, I wanted to bring up is just that it's very unclear what age any of the characters are. Like, Billy, our main character, is living at home, and it seems like he's, like, in high school, but he also, like, goes to a bar, and he's, like, you know, trying to move up in, uh, in his career at the bank and all of that, and it's just, like, Okay, so is he 25 or is he 17? Pick a lane. <laughs> and, and it yeah. just never really seems to resolve that. And then, you know, a few years later, they're living in New York and all of that. But it's just like, I still don't know. And yeah, like his relationship with his parents definitely seems very much like, oh, it's my 15-year-old son that I'm bringing a, a fun toy for or a, a, a pet for, not here, my 22-year-old son. Right, exactly. They're, they're, it's just it's kind of weird. Uh, it's confusing, I guess, is probably a better term. Yeah. All right, so should we move on to Screams and Crowns? Yeah. Uh, as far as Screams go, I gave it a two. Uh, there are moments where it is pretty intense and gory, goopy. I love that word. But again, I, I was never terrified. I was never scared. I was never kind of clenching my couch, asking what was going to happen next. Yeah. Uh, same. 
Uh, don't really have anything to add there. Just <laughs> hit hit the nail on the head. Um, crowns wise, I gave it a seven and a half. Um, I really like a lot of about this movie. I actually was kind of a relative latecomer to the the movie overall, other than seeing it once as a child and having it scarring me. I, I didn't really like seriously watch it until uh, I was an adult, and and so I don't have, I think the the same level of nostalgia that a lot of people have for it. But I really like what it does well and unfortunately the cons are kind of glaring though so yeah seven and a half yeah and for me i gave it an eight and i think that nostalgia factor is what kind of changes it for me i grew up watching this film Uh, me and my siblings loved this movie growing up it was one of our favorites uh so all of that kind of creates some bias for me of course let's move on to gremlins 2 the new batch They're mutating. Sir, is the building on fire? No, no, that's a false alarm. Uh, Are you trying to panic New York City? Absolutely not. So the monsters are real? I didn't say that. Gremlins 2. The new batch. Now, was that civilized? No, clearly not. Fun, but in no sense civilized. Oh, Gremlins 2 is... I was told that I say this word quite a bit, but I'm going to break that and say it once more. Gremlins 2 is bonkers. Straight up bonkers. Oh, yeah. It... Gremlins 2 is a movie that I I had never seen until uh, I watched it for this episode. And bonkers is really the only way to adequately describe this film. It is weird, it is meta, it is over the top, and it works in a lot of ways that, honestly, it shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> but also has some big glaring issues. Um, just a few, I guess, you know, notes about, yeah, again, who, who uh, was behind it. They basically got almost all of the major characters from the, the previous film, at least, you know, they got Billy and Kate and the Federers and, you know, a handful of other characters. But um, then as far as the, uh, you know, kind of behind the camera team, uh, you know, Spielberg and, and the other big producers were back. Joe Dante was back in the director's chair, but this time with Chuck Jones um, also working on the film. And then uh, they had a new writer, Charles Haas. Do you want to briefly walk us through the, the rough plot? <laughs> yeah, so Billy and Kay are in college, I guess. Um, or maybe not in college. They're just living as adults in New York City. Uh, Billy is working as some sort of designer or architect for uh, the Clamp Foundation, which is kind of this play on what we now know to be, you know, Apple or uh, any sort of giant multimedia conglomerate. Uh, and then Kate is kind of a tour guide, and that of is the about the building for some reason. Um, and that plot sets up in the first twenty minutes. Uh, Gizmo makes another appearance. He went back to his. Very racist home, poor guy, at uh, the little Chinatown section of New York City, which then gets destroyed by the clamp industry. They find Gizmo and start doing experiments on him. One thing kind of leads to another. Gizmo gets wet. He reproduces. Those gremlins get wet. They reproduce. Uh, and it's essentially gremlins all over again. Billy and Kate trying to, to destroy all of the evil gremlins that exist. But this time with the twist that... 
um, because of a genetics lab that's conveniently, or, you know, plot conveniently located in the building, uh, suddenly a bunch of the gremlins get changed in, in lots of fun ways. And so, you know, we have a super smart one, and we have a girl one, because that's apparently just, you know, the, the ideal difference is, you know, the weird, sexy girl version of a character, and, you know, we have an electric one, and we have a spider one, and we have all sorts of things. So we just get lots of gremlin shenanigans, and of course then they have to, you know, rally together and stop the, the gremlins, with the help of the Federers for some reason. <laughs> I think my favorite part about Gremlins 2, Nathaniel, was this idea that we got a glimpse at what people thought the future was going to look like in 1990. The Clamp building is supposed to be kind of the first smart building. Mm-hmm. And so there's, you know, video messaging software that they have and elevators that kind of know what floor you're going to go to. A lot of this kind of technology that was very sci-fi back in the time. And now we have all of that, you know, just sitting on my desk right now is my phone. Mm-hmm. And that was really fun to kind of peer back into the past and see what people thought the future was going to look like and what was realized and what has not been realized and what still kind of feels very sci-fi uh, and what we have you know, using for everyday life. Uh, and it was a fun backdrop, too, for all of the gremlins. This clamp building, for some reason, was like... There was a research lab, like you mentioned, but also like a food court and a mall and a architect firm, like just a series of different businesses within one building, which didn't make a ton of sense if you thought about it, but was a fun backdrop for all the gremlins. I mean, there's like a movie studio too. Yeah, yeah, there's like a TV studio. There's all sorts of stuff. And it's just whatever they wanted to cram into it, like whatever random idea they had. Oh well, that's just one of the building or one of one of the parts of the building. Like it, yeah, it seems like it was that the clamp uh, company owned owned the building and used a lot of the space, but then also like happened to just lease out sections to whatever is plot convenient uh, throughout the whole thing. The the whole film definitely is just very convenient. But, thankfully, I, I will say, like, all of these ideas, so, like, on the nose, it, like, it, it knows that these are all unnecessary, they're all ridiculous, and it has no shame in, in, like, trying to hide any of that. This movie is the most, like, meta, obvious, hanging a lantern on, hey, this movie shouldn't exist, but it's, a, it's an unnecessary sequel, but we're going for it anyway kind of cash grab sort of thing that, that like they, they just they have no shame and i think that actually was really smart yeah you could tell that the, it was kind of a love letter to the first movie it's bonkers but it's fun yes like you were talking about the different gremlins that they do the spider gremlin was terrifying to me as a kid uh the electric gremlin is really cool and we have the sophisticated icon that is the brain gremlin who ends up singing you know new york new york all of those were a really fun idea. In the first movie, we just had cute little gizmo. He reproduces, and we get evil gremlins. In this one, he reproduces again, but we get these varied personalities that kind of bring flavor and dimension to, you know, quote-unquote, the gremlin experience. You have your evil gremlins, but you also have your more nuanced, kind of just silly, goofy gremlins, minus the yucky hook gremlin he can just go be thrown in a volcano a- a- along with the sexy gremlin 
who go ahead. Yeah. Last time we recorded, you had some very intense words about sexy gremlin. Yes. Uh, so I looked up her name. It is Greta, and Greta is just the worst. Um, <laughs> okay. So I hate, and and, and this is definitely a, a thing that you see in like everything from like the seventies and eighties. They always have like the the default is male, and then they have the one that is the hot girl one. You know, the same thing, you know, obviously can be applied to, like, the Smurfs or whatever, but, like, the whole personality idea behind it is, hey, this is the female one, and it's really weirdly sexually aggressive. Like, in a way that is deeply problematic and, frankly, pretty rapey. And... (laughs) That's going to be what we play for laughs. It's a reduction of the female. It's taking, you know, these nuanced human beings and just reducing them to a sex object. It's it's But so again, disgusting. it's a weird lizardy gremlin. Yeah. It it it's infuriating to a point because it's just so pervasive in everything. Uh, the stereotypes, like we talked about in Gremlin Ones, are they abound even in this movie? I, I honestly was kind of surprised there wasn't like a sassy gay gremlin that they could have thrown out. It's just oh, it, I'm sure if they made a new one, they would, and uh, they're apparently going to make another one. But we'll get into that later. Don't reduce people to uh, I don't know. We're we're more nuanced than a stereotype. Yes, and so yeah, I hate the whole plot arc for it, like. They they give her a lot of screen time. Yeah, too much. You know, and, and a lot of it is just her making kissy lips and chasing one guy around for a lot of she... it. But then also having like a, a you know, Marilyn Monroe type reveal during some, you know, big section. And then of course suddenly, you know, she also happens to survive them killing off the rest of the gremlins and the the guy that has been pursued relentlessly in again a very rapey problematic way suddenly he just like gives in or that's that's what's suggested as like the the stinger like last little laugh of the movie that's not funny or charming in any way it's deeply problematic Uh, and i think we've kind of moved into some of the issues with this movie Uh, before we kind of dive further uh, the puppetry is even better in this film Oh, yeah. Uh, they really bumped it up level. Which get... is saying something, because it was very impressive in the first one. Uh, the movie, though, it's all over the place. It's very erratic, and I understand kind of what you were talking about earlier, Nathaniel, about how it knew it was kind of unnecessary, and so it just leaned into that. But by doing that to a certain level, I think it makes the threads of the plot unravel just entirely. There were some sections during my rewatch where I was just like, wait, what the hell is going on? Where are we? Where's Billy? Where's Kate? Why are the Fettermans here? Like, it just, it needed some cohesion. Uh, It needed a glue gremlin to come in and put everything together. Uh, And furthermore, the plot just kind of ends. Billy and Kate have this great idea to get all of the gremlins into the center lobby of this building. They're going to trick them that it's night so that they can go out and terrorize New York. It's not night, but they get them all wet, so they start reproducing, and then they unleash the electric gremlin on everybody. And then they, like, dust their hands off, and it's the end of the movie. And it's just like, wait, okay, what? (laughs) 
it just it gives a lot of time to the gremlins these fun creative gremlins that they've created and they're causing chaos and they're doing their shenanigans and their buffooneries and it's fun it's silly kids love it but they do that at expense to the plot and they sacrifice the plot essentially for that and and you can tell it's very apparent yeah and to be fair it is kind of a a very weak plot to begin with yeah but but like a lot of it really is just random aside it's just like random you know shenanigans no context no plot progression it's just like oh and now we're just going to watch gremlins doing silly stuff for five minutes yeah i i think the first one was silly and you know the plot we talked about it being superficial or whatnot but the plot was cohesive it had kind of a trajectory and a way to get to that location this movie gremlins 2 is just too much it was all over the damn place I will say I really, really did enjoy a lot of the very meta elements. Like, I thought, you know, where where the humor shone through was definitely when we have moments like uh, a movie critic saying bad things about the first Gremlins and then Gremlins attacking him. And so, you know, at the end of it, he's like, 10 out of 10, 10 out of 10, <laughs> which feels weirdly similar to our own experience. Oh, Knock boy. On wood. Yeah, Ooh, that just kind of gave me goosebumps. <laughs> but also, uh, you know, it just did some bananas things, like when the movie itself just stops halfway through, and then, like, you know, because the, the gremlins, presumably in the movie theater that you're watching this in, have have stopped the film and, and made it so, you know, they're trying to turn on Snow White again. And so, for some reason, Hulk Hogan also in the theater, turns around and yells at them until they turn the movie back on. Was it stupid? Yes. But was I still enjoying it? Absolutely. I, I, I laughed pretty hard at that part, actually. Um, and then probably my very favorite meta thing was when it took the, you know, like when it, when it had that little like parody moment uh, of the, you know, Phoebe Cates monologue about her dad dying in you know around christmas time you know when when she's like oh don't even talk to me about uh lincoln's birthday you know i was in a in a park with my family and a man dressed in a lincoln costume and then she's like honey no no we have we have to get back to this they're they're attacking right now we have to go we don't have time for this like that was that was very funny yeah, and again, these meta moments really saved the movie from just being a dumpster fire. Yes, but like again, those all rely on you knowing the first movie. If like you can't watch this movie on its own by any means, like it it holds zero water unless you've seen the first one. Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought of that before. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but this movie is grossly racist and sexist, far so than the first one. Yep. Uh, it's it's just. I want to say that it's a product of its time, but I read a really good quote earlier today that when people say, "Oh, I'm just a product of my time," that's just an excuse for allowing themselves to hate. And so, it's just it's not great. You know, I don't want us to to censor it by any means, but you know, no, no, but, but, but it, you know, it's it's good to be like, hey, these are problems. Let's you know, not do these kinds of things in our entertainment anymore, because it's not entertaining, it's just a problem. 
and acknowledging that they are bad, and recognizing that it's bad, and kind of keeping that in mind as you go on in life, I think is really what the best thing to do here is. Uh, Absolutely. Re- recognize that the movie has some very problematic elements. I don't think we need to censor anything, but we need to learn from that and do better. So should we throw out some ratings on this one? Yeah, I gave it a one for Screams. Uh, Same. You know, a lot of the gore and the goop that was in the first one is pretty absent in this one. I don't know. I think the scariest part was when the gremlins were in, like, the ice cream parlor. And I just was grossed out because I don't want gremlin goop on my sprinkles. Hmm. Yeah, same. There's really very few scares that... The scariest part is is the spider gremlin. Crowns wise, uh, I give it a five and a half. It's it's fun. It has a lot of good to it. I I would say it's you know way better than it has any right to be. Um, I gave it a five. There's a lot of nostalgia for this. Growing up, me and my siblings we loved like making up stories with our Beanie Babies. And after we saw this movie, like all the different powers that the gremlins had, we gave our Beanie Babies different powers. My brother had like the electric Beanie Baby that was inspired from this movie. Uh, so as silly as that is, again, gremlins hold kind of a nostalgic weight for me that I have to give it a little bit more credo than perhaps it deserves. Okay, well, before we get into gremlins and folklore, let me just briefly uh, mention some things that are apparently coming up in this franchise because heaven forbid, something from the 80s and 90s stayed in the 80s and 90s. So, apparently there are some plans for making a third film, but nothing has really gotten too cohesive yet from what I can see. But, just three days ago, uh, in HBO Max's first look of of stuff that's coming up, they showed a a first look of an animated series that is coming up called Gremlins Secrets of the Mogwai. And I'll just read this little description. A prequel series, Secrets of the Mogwai, is set long before the events of the original 1984 film. It follows 10-year-old Sam Wing, telling the story about how the boy met Gizmo. Sam, Gizmo, and a street thief named uh, Ellie take a perilous journey through the Chinese countryside, encountering and sometimes battling colorful monsters and spirits from Chinese folklore. On their quest to return Gizmo to his family and uncover a legendary treasure, they are pursued by power-hungry industrialists and his growing army of evil gremlins. The images of the art style, I think, look really bad. It's like that weird, mm-hmm. like, kind of 2D, 3D blend that I don't even know what to, like, my eyes don't know how to process it. I don't know. I think it looks terrible. But who knows? It'd be good. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that description it doesn't give me much hope at all. All right, Nathaniel, talk to us about where we get Gremlins lore from. Yes, so pretty recently I was doing some research about Gremlins, not actually connected to this episode, interestingly enough. I was doing research about Gremlins because I had an idea for a story, uh, which I've written. I'm in the process of of doing some revisions on it, but basically I had heard at one point in time that gremlins are actually connected specifically to the world wars. You know, the more I dug into this, kind of the more I, I found there's there's a little bit of of evidence of there being discussion of gremlins in World War One, but most of it really came from World War Two. Basically, gremlins are specifically tied to technology. Uh, gremlins are 
a creature of folklore that didn't exist, you know, previous to probably 1920-ish. And really, you know, took off more in, in like the late 30s and uh, early 40s. Basically, they were the thing that the Air Force, especially the Royal Air Force of, of the uh, British military, uh, would blame for their problems with their planes. You know, they'd be flying, things wouldn't be working right, you know, instrument panels would go out, or engines would go out, or whatever. And so, they created these creatures, uh, gremlins, that they would then, you know, refer to as being the, the, the reason for the problems. Oh, there's just gremlins chewing on our wires again, that kind of thing. And so, there is a lot of uh, interesting writing that was done around that time. There are some people who did, in fact, claim to see gremlins or you know, see little glimpses of them. I would say that's probably more, you know, in the in the realm of uh, trauma and scary experiences and, you know, having something that, that, you know, it's fun to latch on to so your brain doesn't, you know, have to think about some terrible, you know, war tra- uh, travesty that you just had to, to witness. Yeah, for sure. But it also just, you know, kind of became a, a, a way to just you know commiserate about the frustrations of war and the technology and just you know things not working like it's supposed to and so i found this song poem whatever you want to call it that may have been sung by uh, specifically the royal air force photographic reconnaissance unit um apparently this this was published in like a like a newsletter that they handed out and so i'm going to read this i'm not going to attempt to sing it because i don't one, know the tune, and two, don't have a good singing voice. But uh, let's, but yeah. So it's, it's, but it's kind of interesting to you know see a specific uh, instance of of you know people writing about gremlins kind of in their origin. When you're seven miles up in the heavens, and that's a heck of a lonely spot, and it's fifty degrees below zero, which isn't exactly hot, and you're frozen blue like your Spitfire, and you're scared a mosquito pink. When you're thousands of miles from nowhere, and there's nothing below but the drink. It's then you will see the gremlins. Green and gamboge and gold, male and female and neuter, gremlins both young and old. White ones will wiggle your wingtips, male ones will muddle your maps. Green ones will guzzle your glycol, females will flutter your flaps. Pink ones will perch on your perspex. And dance pirouettes on your prop. There's one spherical middle-aged gremlin who spins on your stick like a top. They'll freeze up your camera shutters. They'll bite through your aileron wires. They'll cause your whole tail to flutter. They'll insert toasting forks in your tires. This is the song of the gremlins as sung by the PRU. Pretty ruddy and likely to many, but fact nonetheless to the few. Yeah, that's that's the song there. And and so yeah, Gremlins mostly were kind of stuck in that period of time. You know, most of the folklore, most of the, the discussion of them really was based uh in wartime or you know, shortly thereafter. But interestingly enough, actually, after we recorded our last episode, I was mentioning some things relative to me working on my story about Gremlins and uh a friend of ours who owns a motorcycle mentioned oh yeah uh gremlins actually get talked about all the time by motorcyclists and i said what 
<laughs> it's a, yeah, it's a, it's actually a really common gift uh, to give each other bells to like hang on like parts of your motorcycle because apparently they're supposed to scare off gremlins because you know whenever you have the inexplicable things go wrong with your motorcycle, it's gremlins that do it. And I was my mind was blown that, that it still kicked around that you know I didn't find that in my research, but hey, it came up naturally. So uh, I will be putting bells all over my house after we finish this recording. Yeah, on all of our computer <laughs> things. Probably not great for microphones, but uh, still... Probably, probably prudent. Alright, tell me how you're staying spooky, Nathaniel. I have been staying spooky by battling gremlins uh, constantly. <laughs> no, so I just read a book called Demonic Foes. This is a book by a, a very esteemed psychiatrist who... Rec- counted all of his experiences basically being asked to be uh, an advisor for uh, like exorcisms and stuff like that. So the, the full title of the book is Demonic Foes, My 25 Years as a Psychiatrist Investigating Possessions, Diabolic Attacks, and the Paranormal by Richard Gallagher. Now this isn't just like some kook. Uh, Richard Gallagher is a board-certified psychiatrist. He had a has a very like renowned career. He has the introduction to this book is by a former head of the American Psychological Association. Like basically oh. just saying, yes, this guy is a really good psychiatrist and knows what he's talking about. So it, it was a really interesting read because you know you get to see a lot of the um kind of medical layperson's side of this, you know, of of the diabolical, of of, you know, priests coming to him and saying, hey, we have this person that we believe may be possessed. We'd like you to you know, help us rule out things like mental illness. And, and so, yeah, he, he served as an advisor, obviously, with the permission of the, of the people and all that. And, yeah, has had, spent 25 years doing that. And it had some interesting stories. And, yeah, he was very grounded in, in medical fact in ways that a uh, few books that I've read along those lines uh, have been. So, Definitely worth checking out. I thought it was a, a really interesting read. How about you? So, in the previous episode, you talked about the lush and seething hell, or a lush and seething hell, I should say. Loved your description of it, so I actually purchased it for myself, and I'm currently reading it right now. The prose and kind of the language that comes through this first short story is so enticing and hypnotizing. If it wasn't the holidays, I would be completely absorbed by this book, but I, of course, have other responsibilities I have to do. Uh, but I'm quite excited to keep going, especially to get to the kind of demonic parts towards the end. Yes. If if you think that this first novella is, is beautiful, the second one's even crazier. Ooh, I'm excited. Oh, it's so good. And then I've also recently gotten into The Witcher. I've never watched the show before, and I just finished the first season, and it's pretty good. Uh, I mean, it's very good. It's The timeline is just kind of bonkers. <laughs> There's that word again. Uh, it jumps all over the place and then kind of comes together in the last two episodes, which is fine. I wish they would have done it a little bit different. I would have been more enthralled with it had the timeline been a little more straightforward. Uh, the second season, however, I'm two episodes into it, and it's by far way better. Uh, very much, very cohesive and very straightforward so far. Uh, awesome. But I've had I've had the Witcher game for a real long time, and of course it talks a lot about the grim monsters, these grim fairy tales and their origins, the Baba Yaga and werewolves and all sorts of terrifying creatures like botchlings. Um, 
and, and so that's been kind of fun. It's not necessarily a horror game, but there are a lot of these dark fairy tale elements to it that give me that kind of a vibe. And I've been enjoying that quite a bit. Yeah, I I actually just barely read um, the second book in the Witcher series, which came before the the movies or the or sorry the the show or or any of the games, and uh, quite digging it. Um, definitely, yeah, has some some real kind of fun, like what what is by modern standards kind of grim dark type elements to it, but is ultimately just kind of your you know run-of-the-mill classic story tales in terms of, you know, bad things happening with <laughs> monsters and stuff like that. Right. But, but yeah, like, has, yeah, I, I like the characters, I like the the world that, that's been built, and it's it's really fun. So it's definitely, you know, good fantasy for people who enjoy horror elements. Uh, one last thing I want to mention before we wrap up is Netflix did a production called Don't Look Up. I watched it over the Christmas break, and Nathaniel, I have got to say, it's probably the best movie of the year for me. Uh, it's Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence, and they play astrophysicists who discover this huge comet, bigger than the one that you know wiped out the dinosaurs. And they take this information to the President of the United States, and what happens is just a tragic and satirical kind of reflection on how our country has handled the pandemic. Essentially, the comet is the pandemic. And so it goes into all of these different nuances of what happened. And, oh, it's so good. If you have not seen this movie, check it out. It's definitely on mine to watch. So, Ugh, It's brilliant. It is brilliant! Great. Uh, well, something for us all to check out on Netflix. Well, we got lots of uh, great stuff coming up. Of course, you know, Scream is coming out in two weeks, so you can definitely expect a Scream-related episode. We have not covered Scream on the podcast yet, which is honestly a criminal crime. And we are actually seeing that movie together! So we yes, are, are. going to be breaking that down. It's going to be a fun... Uh, I love Scream. The first couple Screams are phenomenal, so it's going to be fun to kind of revisit that and see... If it struggles like Halloween Kills does, I I have hope. I I have hope. <laughs> I mean, I I love everything Scream, like the the TV show. Everything I okay. I haven't watched all of the season three of the TV show, which I know is the one that everyone didn't like. But what I've seen, I actually have enjoyed. So I don't know. I'm probably gonna love it just unabashedly. But we'll see what happens. We will find out. All right, everyone, thank you again for your patience. Praise be to the gremlins who are listening. I hope you liked this episode better than the last one. Yes. And stay spooky, friends. Stay spooky. Need even more Scream Kings? Here's our obligatory shameless social media plug. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Scream Kings Pod. You could also email us at ScreamKingsPodcast at gmail.com. Help us reach a wider audience of horror fans by leaving a review on iTunes or by sharing a link on social media. You can also support the show by going to patreon.com forward slash Stay spooky.